Spirit's anointing and Jesus' clear identification with the sinner. As Jesus approaches John the Baptist, he identifies Jesus by saying this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. In preparation for kingdom ministry, he fasted and prayed for 40 days and was tempted by the devil. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam did not, and is why the scriptures declare concerning Jesus, he was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteous of God. Only a sinless sacrifice could pay for the penalty of sinful humanity. And then we saw how Jesus called his 12 disciples and some of them being lowly fishermen by trade who would drop everything they were doing to follow Jesus. And he tells them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Over three years, these men would be his closest friends and experience Jesus' deepest investment in preparation for them to carry on the kingdom ministry that he would hand off to them. Jesus' kingdom ministry was witnessed through his teaching, preaching the good news, healing the sick, diseased, and lame, through the deliverance of the demon-possessed. Signs and wonders of the kingdom has now come in the world. The kingdom ministry inaugurated by the miraculous power of God at work in a broken world. Matthew then moves to the Sermon on the Mount, the longest recorded sermon Jesus delivered, and Matthew devotes 107 verses to it. As Sam had pointed out, the sermon was given on the northern slopes of the Sea of Galilee and was directed to his followers. In the Beatitudes, Jesus reveals what the heart of a follower of his is truly. The character of Christ reflected in how people of his kingdom are to live. Qualities exemplified by the followers' humility and placing his total faith, trust, and dependence upon Christ, the king of the kingdom a kingdom that has invaded the enemy territory of the devil in order that the true king could build his church. For in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says that upon this rock, upon the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The principles of living found in the Beatitudes are what kingdom living looks like while living in the kingdom of this world. Someone has described it as upside down living. These qualities Jesus described, they're countercultural. Each beatitude is actually something that the world despises. I mean, who in the world wants to be poor in spirit, or to mourn sin, or to be humble, or to strongly desire righteousness, or to be merciful, or to be a peacemaker, a person who actually forgives those who hurt them and seeks reconciliation? Qualities that are rare to the kingdom of the world, the qualities that are exemplified in the kingdom of heaven on earth through Jesus' followers. And the final for our text this morning, any idea why I'm cutting in and out? Let's see if I can tighten that up. Uh, in Matthew 5.11, it says, You are blessed when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What we'll see before the morning ends is how when these beatitudes are lived out by the followers of Jesus and the power of Jesus' spirit, they will directly impact a follower's effectiveness as salt and light in the world. So let's go ahead and go to our main text this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 5, 13 through 16.
And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is a passage that if you've been around the church any length of time, you're probably very familiar with. You've probably known since your Sunday school or VBS days when you sang the song, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. See, you do know it. The only tragedy there was that I sang it. But the great tragedy and temptation for us all is to have heard the word of God over and over again and not to live it. What I believe God wants each of us to contend with this morning is do I just know the words of this passage or am I actually living it? Living it as I attend class on Monday morning or as I go to work on Wednesday or as I shop on Thursday or as I live in my neighborhood throughout the week, or as I work out, recreate, play, go to the gym or the golf course, as I come here on Sunday, do I see this as my opportunity to refuel so that I can live out these verses throughout my week? Let's pray and ask God to do something fresh in our hearts that would radically change how we see our world and the people in it, that a changed perspective might change the way we live. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you come to meet with us here in this place. And we thank you that you are so personal and intimate and relational that you meet each of us right where we're at. That you know our hearts, you know our minds, you know our lives. And you want to speak your truth, your word, into very specifically into our lives and where we really stand in relationship to be in salt and light in the world. Lord, we pray that you'd open our minds, open our hearts, give us clarity as to what it is that you want to say to us this morning. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So after Jesus reveals the heart, character, and ethics of a true follower, he immediately moves into the mission of a disciple a mandate for every kingdom follower. A mission evidence in Jesus' final instructions to his disciples just before ascending to heaven. If you remember, there's actually two key passages that Jesus shares with his disciples before he ascends to heaven what their mission is to be. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and I'll be with you always to the end of the age. And then in Acts 1.8, he says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. To be witnesses and to make disciples is the mission that every follower is to embrace as their own. 
In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus reveals the kind of heart and perspective that is needed for his followers. In Matthew 9, 35 through 39, he says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. As we look at our world through the eyes of Jesus, we too will see people who are lost, directionless, lonely, empty, confused, searching and groping through life in the dark, people who are broken and hurting and who have suffered loss, people who are under enormous anxiety and stress, people who are in bondage, people who fear death, uncertain of what they face when this life is done. We're surrounded by these people every day of our lives, people who live life without an answer or remedy to what ails them. And they act in unbecoming, rude, and hurtful ways because of this. Those who have the hurt, the heart and mind of Jesus have compassion on them, for they know too that they once lived in darkness. The heart of a kingdom follower sees the lives of their neighbors, their co-workers, their classmates, their longtime friends, their extended family members as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd because he or she sees them through the eyes and heart of Jesus. Then Jesus says to his disciples, he says, hey, listen, the world is always going to be full of lost, hurting, and broken people. The, po the potential for harvest is never going to be lacking. That's not the problem. The problem is, Will you choose to be one of those laborers, one of those workers in the harvest field? The problem is never going to be a lack of people who need Jesus. The problem is always that too few Christians are workers in the harvest field, too few are living as salt and light in the world. Let's go back to our text. Jesus uses two metaphors to describe followers of his. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He didn't say you're supposed to be salt and light or I want you to choose to be salt and light. He says that every Christian, every believer in him is salt and light. The moment that you've trusted Christ as your savior, you become salt and light. So let's see if we can gain an understanding of what being salt and light means. Matthew 5.13 But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So salt, it gets a pretty negative rap today, doesn't it? Everyone's warned, you know, don't put too much salt on your food, you know, because it can give you health issues. Well, my wife, Lisa, is notorious for salt. She's a fantastic cook. And I really didn't know how food was supposed to taste until I married her. Because everything she cooks has to have plenty of salt and garlic. Yeah. So she loves salt so much that she carries those little fast food packets with her in her purse. And she strategically places five different salt shakers around the house. There's one on the dining room table, on the kitchen counter next to the stove, on an end table where she sits, on her nightstand, and in the bathroom. 
No, she doesn't really put it in the bathroom. That would make her crazy. But you know what? She gets an annual physical each year, and her numbers always come back fine. So go figure. But in the days of Jesus, salt was of extraordinary value. It was viewed in a lot of ways as a currency. Roman soldiers were often paid in salt, and it's where the old saying, you are worth your weight in salt, came from. Salt was used in the ancient world to flavor foods, and even in small doses, they used it as fertilizer. Since there was no source of refrigeration, above all, salt was used as a preservative. When it was rubbed on meat, it would slow its decay. Strictly speaking, salt, sodium chloride, is a stable compound, and it can't really lose its saltiness. But most salt in Jesus' day was derived from the salt marshes around the Dead Sea, whose water was full of minerals and impurities. The actual salt being more soluble than those impurities, the sodium chloride could leach out, leaving a residue so diluted it was of little worth for flavoring food or for acting as a preservative against decay. If that occurred, savorless salt would be scattered on the soil of flat roofs to harden it and to prevent leaks. Since the roofs were where children would play, and in the evening as the sun would go down, people would gather and socialize and fellowship. During those times, the salt was being trampled under people's feet. So what's the application for a follower of Christ? Well, first, your life is to bring flavor to your world. When salt is applied, it makes things taste better. And this should be true of you and the places you go and the people you encounter, the relationship that you're in. In your workplace, in your classroom, in your neighborhood, those places are better because followers of Jesus are there. Christians should never be called boring or dull. We should be people who thoroughly enjoy life and have fun and laugh and entertain and show hospitality. We spice life up a bit. And what I mean by spicing life up is not in an immoral way, but in a way that we enjoy all that God has made and all the gifts he has blessed us with. And not just the benefit for us, but for the benefit of others. The second application is that you are to act as a preservative against moral decay. Preservers of the good, agents of life, not death, in every environment pushing back against the darkness. We are people who speak truth and love to the issues of our day. We understand that the sinner in the world is not our enemy, that our true enemy is the devil who has blinded the minds of unbelievers and taken them captive to his will. We speak the truth not because of judgment and condemnation, but because we know that the wages of sin is death, and in love our heart breaks over the destructive choices people in the world are making. We share the good news of the gospel because we know that Jesus is the only one who can set people free both in this life and the life to come. So let's take a look at the second metaphor, light. Let's read again verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God your Father in heaven. So if we did a general biblical history of light, we'd have to start in Genesis 1-3 where it says God is the creator of light. In James 1-17, it speaks of the Father being light, And then in John 8, 12, and 9, 5, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. 
Then here in Matthew chapter five, Jesus says that his followers are the light of the world. But what we need to realize is that we do not have a light source within ourselves. Our light is a reflected light. Just as the moon does not have the ability to shine itself, it's, it has light through the reflections of through the sun, neither can we shine in our world without the Son of God. It's the life of Christ through the Spirit that indwells us that enables us to shine. Just as any lamp in our house must be plugged into a source of power and turned on to shine, so must we be daily connected to Christ as our source of light and power. In ancient days, a home light consisted of oil lamps, and you would put some oil in a, in a jar or a pot, you'd light a wick, and then you'd put a, a piece of glass over it, and that would light up the house. But no one would put a bowl over it or set it on the ground. They would instead put it on a lampstand so that it could light up the entire house. The reason an entire city on a hill would be lit up at night is because from a distance you could see through the windows of each house their light placed on their lampstand shining through their windows. I found it fascinating that one commentator suggested that Jesus was intentionally moving from light being shined in the world when he says, you are the light of the world. And note that that word you is actually the plural form suggesting Jesus is saying that his followers do not independently light up their world but they do so in and through living in community with one another. But then Jesus moves us from lighting the world to the city. When he says a city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. And then he moves from the city to the house. Your light on a lampstand gives light to the entire house. We can see that Jesus is breaking down in this way to say everywhere you are and everywhere you go and everything you do, you are to be light. If you do not shine in these places, there's no chance that those who live in darkness will ever see the light of the glory of Christ. They will never come out of the darkness into his marvelous light. If we go back to the Beatitudes, we understand that what we need most of all as we live in the dark world is the heart of Jesus so that when people persecute you, be light. When people insult you, be light. If people say false things about you, be light. If people do evil against you, be light. Not an easy thing to do, is it? That's something that we only can do in the power of Christ, through the power of the Spirit living in us. Jesus knows that unbelievers, those living in darkness, will not behave as Christians. What they need to see is that Jesus' followers are radically different than those who live in darkness and how they face pain and suffering and loss, and how they handle difficult people who do and say unkind things, and how they respond to slights and injustices, how instead of holding a grudge, they forgive others and seek reconciliation. This is all countercultural. This is all otherworldly. People without Christ do not respond in this way. And it's grievous when Christians don't respond this way. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once in darkness, but now you live in his marvelous light. 
Can you still remember whose light shone so brightly that led you out of darkness and drew you to Christ? I want you to think about that person for a moment. And then I want you to consider to find some people where God can use you to do the same thing. It's your mission. It's Christ's mandate for your life. And Peter says this in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ, the Lord is holy, ready at any time to give an answer to anyone who asks for you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And if this isn't a shine your light passage, I don't know what is. Peter is speaking to the life of the Christian who is suffering or who's in pain or who has lost someone dear or who has a dream that's been shattered or who has received that horrible diagnosis or who has suffered injustice from an evil person. And yet that person still walks through life with peace and joy and hope and is still centered on loving and serving others. And the questions that come through that are, how can you have so much peace or how can you have so much joy or how can you still have hope when it seems like everything in your life is shattering all around you? It's these moments that your light shines the brightest. The question comes because that person is drawn to the light in you. They see there's something different about you. You respond to hardship and difficulties and injustices like no one they've ever seen, and it's attractive to them, and you get to tell them about Jesus because of it. One scholar I read suggested that the word light in its original language was the English word for photo. Quite often, when people see photos of my dad and myself in the same picture, they say, wow, you look a lot like your dad. And yeah, I'm a human reflection in that way of my dad. But what's being spoken of here as light in relationship to a photo is that when people see how you live and act and behave and respond to life's challenges, you are a reflection of your heavenly father. <clears throat> You are a reflection of Jesus, and people are drawn to Jesus because of your light shining. And that's what it's all about. You see, we aren't trying to impress people or to draw people to us. We're trying to draw them to Jesus. In Matthew 5, 16, it says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So in essence, to be salt and light in your world, it's to be like Jesus. It's to live like Jesus. It's to love like Jesus, so that you can share Jesus with others. This isn't a suggestion. It's not an option that a follower of Jesus can choose from. It's not if I can find a way to fit it into my busy schedule. It's not another sacred compartment to add to the compartments of my life. You know how we can 
divide our lives up into the secular and the sacred, where the secular is everything in my life except my church stuff, and the sacred stuff is my church stuff and my God stuff and my God priorities, and we kind of divide our words from the secular and sacred, and we live different in the secular, and we, then we live different with our church stuff. We need a paradigm shift. You see, because we're to live an undivided life, a fully integrated kingdom life. There's only one compartment that fills our lives, and that is Jesus Christ, who is to directly impact all of life. Amen. Being a follower of Christ is to be our life, the way we live in everything we do and everywhere we go, our home with our spouse and kids, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our fellow classmates, our shopkeepers, and restaurant workers. And I think too many Christians live by the motto, whether intentionally or unintentionally, I'm a Christian, but my faith is private. And what they're saying by that is, I'm a Christian, but I really don't want people to notice. I'd rather fit in and live in peace and not create waves and have people like me. But you see, the, the mandate that Jesus has given every follower is that we are to move out into our culture. We are to go the Great Commission has never been to get them to come to us, but for us to go to them. I want to share some personal examples with you. And this isn't to exalt myself or to say, look at me. I'm someone who tends to be a loner and an introvert, and my wife can testify to that. There's times early in our marriage where I needed time alone and she was offended that I did, she thought I didn't want to be around her. But you see, my energy gets depleted by being around people and I energize by being alone by myself. And so she finally understood that and realized that I needed that. You see, God has used turning 60 and being diagnosed with cancer a short time after to radically change my heart my life and how I live and what I live for. Through my own trials, he has softened my heart for those who are in the dark without him. I pray daily for a long list of non-Christians in my life. I pray for opportunities. I pray for God to set up divine appointments. And then I seek opportunities to befriend people, to share my story of how Jesus has set me free and forever changed my life. Many of you remember that not too long ago, I sent out my testimony of faith to hundreds of family and friends on Facebook. You could do that. I mean, if there, of the, of the choices of being salt and light, if there was one that was the most non-threatening, it's sending out a Facebook thing about your faith in Jesus. I recently met a guy named Don at Club Fitness, and he retired from Boeing after working there for 40 years, and he worked on fighter jets and, and bombing systems, and he was a Vietnam vet. And he told me he grew up Methodist and then switched to a Baptist and then 30 years ago converted to the Muslim faith. Right there in the gym, I got the chance to share Christ with him and to talk about the difference between the Muslim God and the Christian God. So much so that I had to go to the bathroom. When I came out to the bathroom and I'm washing my hands, he's showing up next to me wanting to continue the conversation. I had a sister who recently went through a painful divorce from her cheating husband, 
And I felt like the Lord wanted me to set up regular dinners and try to enter her pain and show how much I cared and to share the gospel with her. And she asked me if when she was ready, if I could help her learn to forgive her ex-husband. You could start pursuing extended family members who don't know Christ. Sometimes they're the people, after being Christian for such a long time, they're the forgotten unbelievers of our life. There's a restaurant owner nearby here that I've made friends with through frequenting his establishment, and we found out that we've got a common love for pickleball. So I invited him to play the other day, last week, and we're setting up a time in March on a Saturday where we can get together and play pickleball. And I asked Chuck Simpson, because he loves pickleball, if he would come and and get friends with him as well so that we can maybe possibly influence him for Christ. I got two longtime neighbors where she was diagnosed with cancer and we brought over some food and we told her that she was placed on her church prayer chain and after she had surgery, she was told she was cancer-free and this absolutely blew her and her older son away that people who don't know them would pray for them and they're associating those prayers with her healing. Do you think there's going to be future opportunity, maybe, open doors to talk with her? We've got new neighbors, Lloyd and Margaret, that just moved in several months ago, and we connected over our love of 70s rock and roll, and he plays the drums. So he said, hey, come on over and look at my drums. And so went over and spent some time, and he's got posters, rock and roll posters of the 70s and our favorite bands. And we talk about the concerts we went to when we were younger. And and many, some of you know that I've been a closet drummer all my life. I'm always beating my hands. And I just recently got our church drums brought over to my house. And so um, at the age of 64, I'm going to try to learn the drums. But now I can connect with him and say, hey, can you teach me some stuff about the drums? These are the kind of things that God does. When you are actively seeking and praying and asking God for divine appointments, he just will start bringing these things into your life because he knows that you're serious about it and that you really want to be salt and light and you really want to see all of your light as a mission for Jesus Christ. A year ago, I had a couple guys knock on my door in the neighborhood who found out I was a pastor and said, hey, would you mind leading a Bible study in our neighborhood? Like, no, I don't have time. Of course I didn't say that. <laughs> when do you get a couple strangers that you barely know that your acquaintances say, hey, could you lead a Bible study in our neighborhood? Sure. Well, I was hoping that it would be, you know, maybe 50-50 Christians and, and unsaved people, and it's nine of us get together and we're Christians. But we decided to have a block party, and 50 of our neighbors showed up. We got to introduce ourselves and talk about the Bible study. You could do that. All of these things that I've just talked about, you could do that. Whether it's going to West County Care Center, sharing Christ with lonely and hurting residents, you could join our team. We could use your help. Or whether it's going to Columbia on two mission trips, you know, I got to be honest with you. God willing, those will be my 12th and 13th mission trips. But my first one in 1993, I felt like a fish out of water. And on the flight back, I determined in my mind that mission trips were not for me and that I was going to just be part of sending others. You see, over four years of walking with Christ, everything God has asked me to do, whether to be a disciple of others or share my story or the gospel or to lead small groups or some ministry or to teach or preach or to do a wedding or a funeral or to start a new church or to go on the mission field or to reach out 
to those without Christ every single time I was afraid. And sometimes I was deathly afraid. There'd be nights where I knew I had to do something the next day and I would not sleep a wink the night before. And some of that was the fear of humiliation or the fear of embarrassment or fear of being rejected or the fear of not having what it takes. A lot of that stemming from my childhood. But every time I said yes to God and didn't allow my fear to be the roadblock to serving him, I've learned that being a follower of Jesus is always going to be out of comfort zone living. Always. He invites us to do things that are beyond our natural abilities so that he can get the glory, not us. And Jesus wants to use everything in our lives. In order to faithfully engage your call to be salt and light, you're to use your gifts that he's given you. Use your unique personality, your spiritual gifts. Use your skill and talents, your home for opening up to be hospitable to others. Use your financial resources, your Christian friends, technology, social media, your love for video games, the workplace, neighborhood, kids, teams, and activities. All of it can be used as potential avenues to reach the lost and the hurting. And you aren't meant to do this alone. Enlist other Christians to join you like I did with Chuck Simpson. Get your spouse involved. Get your kids involved. Get your church family members involved. Get Christians who are in your biological family involved. Christians in your neighborhood, like our neighborhood Bible study, or Christians in your workplace or school. I know guys who have started workplace Bible studies where both believers and unbelievers showed up. Use your hobbies to befriend and reach others, your love of sports, golf, exercising at the gym, hiking, fishing, cooking, woodworking, crafts, video games, love for eating out. Use it all. Be creative. The possibilities are endless. And I plan on giving some future training in the months ahead on being a Christian in the workplace and how to be salt and light and how to become a contagious Christian. But it's not really that you really need that. All you need to do is stay connected with Christ and let his light shine through you and then start caring about unsaved people, lost people in your world, and pray. Pray. Pray is not the last resort. Pray is the first line of attack. Prayer changes your heart. Prayer changes the hearts of those you're trying to reach for Christ. Prayer opens up opportunities as you see God create divine appointments. To start, ask God to help you create a prayer list of people in your life that are without Christ. And some of those people, you know, you're not going to like. Or some of those people are going to feel like enemies. Or some of those people maybe have insulted you or wronged you. But you know what happens when you start praying for people? your heart starts softening towards those people. And you start caring more about them than the things that they've done to you because their eternal destiny starts to becoming more important than that. Ask God for a plan of action. Ask God for the courage to fully engage yourself in his kingdom mission. 
And it's important to understand finding an avenue to be on mission for Christ does not exempt you from living a life on mission for Christ. Let me explain what that means. We tend to want to believe I'm fulfilling my mandate to be engaged with kingdom mission if I'm discipling my kids or if I'm working with teens in the student ministry or kids in the Sunday school or if I'm helping out with the senior care ministry or the broken and beautiful prison ministry or I'm going to Columbia on a mission trip. We convince ourselves that that kind of gives us an excuse to forget about our extended family members, our longtime friends we socialize with, or our neighbors, or our coworkers, or our classmates, the people that don't know Jesus who naturally surround our lives day in and day out. It's absolutely fantastic that you're currently choosing to disciple your kids or to be in ministry with teens or kids in our church or to go to the care ministry or to go on mission trips. But remember, you are to be salt and light in your world, in your city, and in your home. God has placed everyday people in your everyday life for you to be salt and light, shining brightly the person of Christ so that they're drawn to him. Being salt and light is not adding a bunch of things to your already overloaded schedule. It's just choosing to live your everyday schedule and the things that people or in your lives that are already living as salt and light. You see, because sometimes we can get bogged down with this or the message like this, and we say, oh, yeah, I feel guilty. I should be more salt and light, and I should be more about the mission. And so I've got to figure out what do I need to add to my calendar, and all of a sudden it gets like, man, I'm already full enough. I'm already busy enough. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you just naturally live as salt and light in everything you're already doing. As people of Emmanuel Fellowship Church, let's begin to radically embrace the mandate of Jesus to be salt and light in our world. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we stand amazed at you and how you being God, the eternal God, chose to condescend and come from heaven to take on human flesh. We stand amazed that you you came to make a way back to yourself. You came on a rescue mission to save us from ourselves. And you didn't make us pay the punishment for our sin, but you took it on yourself in our place. What a wonderful and glorious and amazing Savior and Lord you truly are. And so now you've given us this wonderful opportunity. Those of us who know you, those of us who have been saved by you, those of of us who have been forgiven by you, those of us that you walk with us every day of our lives, you've given us this wonderful opportunity, this mission, this mandate to be salt and light on your behalf. Help us to see that as an honor and a privilege. Help us to, to feel the devotion that we have for you and the love we have for you that it would well out of us and to others. Help us to see our world as as you see it, with your eyes and with your heart and with your mind, that we might see the people around us, the people that even bug us, the people that even wound us, the people that insult us. Help us to see them as you see them, because we once were those people who were wounding you, and yet you forgave us, and you cleansed us, and you came into our life. Lord, we just... Lift up this church, Emmanuel Fellowship Church. This is your church, and we pray that we would truly be about the mission that you've given us, to be salt and light in a hurting and broken world. And we
we ask that in your most precious name. Amen. Let's go ahead and spend a little time in prayer, personal prayer and reflection, because we know that God meets us in a very personal way, just right here in the midst of how many people are here. He wants to talk with you for a few moments and have you talk with him and just be honest with him about where your heart's been in relationship to being salt and light in your world. Talk to him about the fears that you have of being rejected or being unliked or being thought strange or weird. And talk to him, ask him to give you the courage to really move forward and be in the world, salt and light, his representative. So let's go ahead and spend some time in prayer. And then after that, we're going to do a, another song. <clears throat>